chapter 10 this morning. We're looking at Mark chapter 10, verses 32 through 45. And so if you do not have a Bible with you, um, you can pull out your app or there's Bibles in the back. You can just raise your hand and somebody will pass them out. The words will not be on the screen. Just an encouragement, again, another reminder, bring your Bible with you um, when you come to church in the mornings, okay? That's my encouragement to you, all right? We want to be people of God's word and we want to learn how to navigate it. I could be up here blowing smoke out of my mouth for all you know. Bring your Bible and make sure that what I'm saying is actually God's word, all right? Um, we are in the middle of a conversation of really a lesson on what discipleship is. Jesus, between really the end of chapter 8 and, the begin, and throughout chapter 10, is teaching his disciples not just who he is, but also what he came to do. And as a result, what it will mean for them as they follow him. In this passage this morning, we have maybe what is the most concise, the most clear mission statement, purpose statement of why Jesus came to earth. All right, this is really in this passage, in verse 45, we will see really what is the summary passage of the gospel of Mark. And so I'm going to go ahead and read verses 32 through 45. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was about to happen, saying, See, we are going to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles." They will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you're asking are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism, with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at the left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Verse 45, For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Father God, Lord, as we just look at this text this morning, Lord, I pray that that your truth would be proclaimed, Father, and that your people would be challenged to obey it. Father, we ask these things in your holy and precious name. Amen. Well, we're in the middle of Olympic season, right? Winter Olympics are upon us. And um, I want to share a quick story of a kind of a funny story, an odd story of the Summer Olympics that were held in St. Louis in 1904. They were a bizarre, it's really to say the least, they were the, a very bizarre Olympics. One of the most bizarre things about these Olympics was the men's marathon race that was held in St. Louis. There were 32 athletes that ran in this race that represented four different countries. It's interesting because of the 32, only 14 
would actually finish the race. The race was held at that time, you know, over 100 years ago. St. Louis looked very different. The roads were made of gravel and dust and sand. And the officials and the, the pace car that went out as it drove out on these roads kicked up that dust. And there were men that were running the race that would literally collapse as their lungs were overcome with the dust of the road. Lots of strange things about the race, but nothing is more strange than the results. The first to arrive at the finish line, his name was Fred Lors, and he had actually dropped out of the race after nine miles, hitched a ride in the back of a stadium, to, to the back of the stadium in a car, waving at spectators and runners all the way. The car would eventually break down at the 19th mile mark, and Lors re-entered the race at that point and finished the last you know, five miles, there was at that time only run 24 miles, entered the last, you know, four or five miles of the race and jogged across the finish line and he was hailed as the winner. He even had his picture taken with President Roosevelt's daughter and was very close to receiving the medal, the gold medal, when eventually, you know, spectators began to say, hey, I saw that man in the back of a car. The jig was kind of up, so to speak, and so they took the gold medal back from him and they gave it to the next man who unfortunately didn't do much of a better job. His name was Thomas Hicks. He, Thomas Hicks, he was the winner, even though he was aided by measures that certainly would disqualify him to this day. About 10 miles from the finish, Hicks was leading the race. Victory was in sight, but he began to feel weak and his legs would give out. His trainers and his support base could see the tiredness and the weariness and to keep him from collapsing and, and falling down on the race, they would feed him doses of strychnine sulfate, a common rat poison which stimulates the nervous system in small doses. So small doses of rat poison mixed with brandy, okay? <laughs> He, he would continue with this potent mixture in his system to battle the last several miles of the race, barely able to walk and hallucinating most of the rest of the course. <laughs> Judges agreed this was acceptable and gave him the gold medal. Perhaps you're familiar with the motto. It's one that's familiar in the sports world. No pain, no gain. No pain, no gain. That's right. Yet if you were to take a quick scan of sports history, you would find that it is one that is full of corked bats, deflated footballs, paid off referees, performance enhancing drugs. This reality, this, this temptation to achieve the gain while bypassing the pain is part of sports history. It's also part of our history. It's a temptation that as we examine what it means to follow Jesus, we see it played out in the passage before us. The exact same temptation would manifest itself to the disciples' heart as they considered the true nature, the genuine nature of discipleship. And they were tempted like Frank Lors and Thomas Hicks and so many that have come since to bypass suffering and rejection that comes with following Jesus. Kind of the big idea here in this passage in Mark 10, we see Jesus really is making the point that in God's kingdom, suffering comes before glory. This is true for Jesus and it is true for his followers 
There simply is no other way. Suffering comes before glory. This morning, I want to encourage you in wholehearted devotion to Jesus, a devotion that is so deep, so genuine, that it will allow you to navigate and to embrace the reality of the cross that you will bear as you walk with Jesus in this life. As we walk through this passage, we're going to see several things. We'll see a great request. We will see a great response. There'll be a great reflection. And finally, a great ransom. The great request passage here, end of chapter 8 through chapter 10, is on discipleship, as I mentioned before. The idea is that these men are walking with Jesus. They are headed towards Jerusalem. And the story really is that at the beginning of this book, Jesus has showed himself to be the king, the long-awaited Messiah, the only one who is fully deserving of the crown. He is the king. Here in this passage, it begins to turn and, and darkness be, of the shadow of the cross begins to set in and Jesus turns his disciples' attention towards the cross. The conversation continues and since the end of chapter 8 to now, the passage this morning, three times Jesus has given them a passion prediction, a prediction of the suffering of exactly what is waiting for them when they arrive in Jerusalem. Third time, and after each one, if you were to go back and examine each one of these passages, these predictions, it is followed by an interaction with the disciples which will reveal just how difficult it is for them to grasp who Jesus really is and what is about to happen to him. After each one of the predictions, in chapter 8, we see it happen when, when Jesus claims that he is going to, he begins teaching that he will suffer many things, that he will be persecuted, that he would rise again. What happens? Peter would stand up and rebuke him. Oh no, Lord, not so. I will not let it happen. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, and says, I, anything that gets in the way between me and the cross is akin to the devil. Chapter 9, verse 31, he tells them again, the Son of Man is going to be delivered to the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he is killed after three days, he will rise. We are told that they simply don't understand in chapter 9. And then immediately after that lesson, we are told that they begin to argue amongst themselves of who is the greatest. So these, these passages are each laid out where there is this prediction of Jesus' suffering that will come. And following it immediately is a story of just how much the disciples don't get it. They're missing the point. Our, our passage here this morning, we see the exact same pattern. He gives them here in our passage 32, verses 32 through through 34, he gives them the most comprehensive, detailed description of his crucifixion. He says, I love the way he puts it, Mark puts it, he's going up to Jerusalem and Jesus is walking ahead of them. So the, the picture is that the disciples are following Jesus. He is out in front. The disciples, as they see him, and I don't know if it's, if it's his swagger, the way that he's walking, the pace that he's walking, but they are amazed. And some, it says, are terrified. Some understand exactly what's happening. Others are still trying to figure it out. Jesus is amazing. He is heading to Jerusalem. He knows exactly where he is going. He is on a mission. He's the one who's leading the way. And while he walks on the road, again, he takes time to prepare his disciples for it. And how do they respond? They respond by asking him a question. Love this question. Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. What a fantastic question. God, I want you 
to do anything that I ask, right? It's a bold question to be sure. That is the question, is the question that they ask. It shows just how much they're lacking in their understanding of who Jesus is and what he came to do. What I love more than that question is I love the way Jesus does and does not respond to that question. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? Right? He entertains the question. Like if I was in Jesus' role after over time and time again dealing with these guys who are not getting it, I would be tempted to just... What do you mean? Anything me to do for you? Are you kidding me? Do you know what's waiting for me in Jerusalem? Jesus entertains it. His response is full of grace and compassion. He engages them. He doesn't slap them. (laughs) The fundamental issue that Jesus is addressing, the way he engages his disciples in response to them, the fundamental issue that he addresses is the issue of blindness. See, there's a story that will follow this passage, the story of the blind man Bartimaeus. And in that story, we see a very different question that is asked by Bartimaeus, right? Bartimaeus is a blind beggar that they encounter on the road, sitting on the roadside in in Jericho. And he heard a commotion in the crowd that had followed Jesus. And when he figured out that it was Jesus, he cries out, have mercy on me, right? He sees Jesus, he understands Jesus is in the area and this is his only hope. The only hope he has for sight in life is Jesus. Have mercy on me. Many would rebuke him, be quiet. However, the more they rebuke and tell him to be silent, the louder he gets. Have mercy on me. Jesus would hear his cry, calls him to himself, and listen to what Jesus says. What do you want me to do for you? Word for word, the exact same question he asked James and John in our passage this morning. The exact same question. Two stories, men in radically different positions. The disciples following Jesus. They're in a place maybe of privilege and their position is one that has potential power they see ahead of themselves. And that of a blind beggar. They're asking radically different questions. Radically different. Some are requesting James and John more privilege, more honor, great position. And one, the blind beggar Bartimaeus, is asking simply for mercy. Yet they share something. What do they share? They share blindness. One, physical, unable to physically see the Savior who is standing in front of him. The others, James and John, unlike Bartimaeus, they don't know that they're blind. Jesus is exposing their blindness. They can physically see Jesus, but spiritually they are actually in a much worse position than the poor beggar, for they can't see Jesus for who he really is. Verse 37, and they said to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left hand in glory. James and John see Jesus heading towards Jerusalem, the holy city of God, the capital city. They are the, with the promised Messiah. The promises of God are about to break through. Jesus will be enthroned as king, and, and they, James and John, they're on his team. They are with the king. This they see as their opportunity to position themselves in a place of power and privilege and prominence. 
We are heading to glory. Greatness lies ahead of us. See, on the surface, they may say, you may say, be tempted to think initially, well, how dare they? What a bold question. To be great? How dare they? They are, they are two men of 12, and they want to be great. What a, what a crazy, crazy question. And, and maybe some of you, this idea of aspiring to greatness, maybe some of you this morning can relate to that. Maybe some of you can. But on the most fundamental level, this question, this desire springs from something that is absolutely foundational to human nature. This is the question, honestly, we are all asking. It is the good that we are all after. This question exposes not simply a desire to be great, but their desire to be significant. To be somebody, to live a life that actually means something. At the foundational, fundamental level, that's where it comes from. A desire within them to be significant. You know, in recent research that was produced by UC Berkeley, um, this reality is blamed for an abundance of our social problems. The reality of, of sort of this desire, this fight for significance that often happens within culture is, is blamed for many of our ills in society. At the society level, it says, societal level, it says, this status inequality predicts unhappiness, selfishness, illness, immortality, violence, and corruption. At the group level, it causes mistrust among members, dampens motivation, and on balance, hampers collective performance. A profoundly important and yet unanswered question is thus. If status inequality causes so much dysfunction, is responsible for so many of our ills in society, why does it pervade human social groups? Why is it there? Indeed, status hierarchies are ubiquitous, emerging in friendship groups, in the workplace, in neighborhoods, and even in contexts where people are incentivized to be egalitarian. Even in the places where they value equality, status inequality still emerges. Saw the movie Black Panther this week. Great movie, fantastic movie. But even in sort of this utopian setting, you still see sort of a fight for status. Even within this country that's supposed to be completely void of it. It's interesting. It's interesting if you were to watch that movie and think of it through these lenses, you'd see it'd be, it's, it's a great way to watch the movie. We see trouble. We see division even in this text, begin to emerge. As John and James try to fight and position themselves for a place of significance and a higher status, what happens to the rest of the disciples? They become indignant. See, the reality is, the reason why we can't rid ourselves of it is because it's a part of our nature. It's a part of our sinful nature. The disciples are, are about significance they want they ask for significance and Jesus when they ask for significance gives them a lesson on suffering as they require and ask and request for significance Jesus response is one of suffering it's interesting 
The question shows us two things about their understanding of Jesus. I think one thing it tells us is they get something right. They understand that Jesus, right, they, they, they were on the mountaintop with him. They, they, they understand who Jesus is. His full glory was revealed to him. They get that he's the king. They get he has a crown. They understand that the power this man has. But what they get wrong is the role of suffering within his kingdom. The cross, what they get wrong is that the cross comes before the crown, both for Jesus and for those who follow him. Let's look at his response. Jesus responds, ex- again, exposes their blindness, claiming that, they have, claiming that they have no idea what they're asking. Yes, there will be someone, he says, at my right, and there will be someone on my left as I enter my glory. What they don't realize is that the one on his right and the one on his left, they will be nailed to crosses. Jesus goes on to explain to his disciples what it means to enter into glory, and he uses two metaphors to do that. The metaphor of the cup and that of baptism. Yes, are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? These images, these symbols are used in the Old Testament. The disciples would be quite familiar with them. The readers of Mark's gospel would be also quite familiar with what these symbols represent. The cup is really a representation of suffering and death. We see in Psalm 75, verse 8, For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. The cup represents suffering, also represents death. In the Garden of Gethsemane, we learn in Mark 14, hours before his death, as Jesus is described being distressed, overcome with sorrow and agony, he would eventually sweat drops of blood. Why? What is disturbing him in the garden? Because what's disturbing him is that Jesus is staring into the cup. Right? He would pray, cry out to his father, remove this cup from me. He knows exactly what he is about to do. And as he walks towards persecution, towards the crucifixion, he talks about it in terms of a cup. Around here, every other week, we celebrate communion. We remember what Jesus would accomplish on the cross and what it would require from him. And it is the cup that we drink to remember that someone else drank the cup for us. It's a reason why we celebrate drinking the cup today. The other image that he uses is that of baptism. Are you able to be baptized as I am baptized? Jesus is saying, James, John, I'm about to be completely overwhelmed with water, like someone walking on a beach in the middle of a tsunami. This is the biblical picture that we use to symbolize our devotion and our commitment to Jesus. That as we are plunged beneath the water, our old life, our former life is dead. And out of the water emerges a brand new creation, new life. That new life is not possible apart from death. Jesus answers their request for greatness, for significance, by telling them about suffering and death that is waiting for them. Verse 39, and they said to him, we are able, again, not fully understanding where Jesus is going, what Jesus is saying. Yes, we can do it, Jesus. We got this. We're able. Jesus is quick with a comeback. You are right. You will suffer. You will drink of the cup and you will be baptized. 
We know in Acts 12 that James' fate would eventually, he would be brutally killed because of his faith. And we know that the destiny for John is not that far different. He would outlive the other apostles but suffered greatly at the hands of the Roman authorities who sentenced him to live in exile on the island of Patmos. They will drink of the cup. They will be baptized Now, the other disciples, they hear that James and John are sort of jockeying for position, and they get mad. They grow indignant towards these brothers. Jesus, recognizing that division is beginning to set in among the disciples, steps in. He calls them to himself, and in verse 42, and once again, takes advantage of the opportunity to teach these men really what is the way of Jesus to a great reflection. In his response, Jesus compares the way of the world to the way of Jesus and how radically different these two ways are. He shows that there is a radical different understanding of what greatness and significance looks like in the world compared to that of the kingdom. You know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them, he says, and their great ones exercise authority over them. The way of the world, he talks about in terms of, he compares it to the Roman Empire, rulers of the Gentiles. The way of the world is a way of self-exaltation, self-promotion, forceful conquest, stepping on others as you ascend to the top of the pile. The way of the world around us is getting to the front of the line by any means necessary. This isn't just the way of the world around us operates. This is what is natural to us. It's so amazing to me here at Faith Academy, you know, kindergarten through fifth grade is it doesn't take, I mean, you're five years old, right? Five years old. And if you, if you say, I need a line, the amount of brutality that goes into, you know, that becomes a reality to get to the front of that line is just unbelievable. At our house, we like to eat cookies, lots of cookies, just the good ones, though. But we like to eat cookies. And when we make cookies and we put a plate of cookies on the table... It is amazing to watch, you know, the kids come around, and not just now, but really all their life come around, and they examine the cookies, and as they see the one that's the biggest with the most chocolate chips in it, it's like laser focus, that's the target, that's where I'm going for, right? There's something within us that will do whatever it takes so that we can be the ones that that promote ourselves, that exalt ourselves, that emerge on the top of the pile. It's natural to us. It's natural. Jesus says in verse 43, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. See, the way of Jesus could not be more different than the way of this world. The way of Jesus is to be the least, to be constantly considering the needs, the rights of those around you. The way of Jesus is willingly taking your place at the back of the line. The way of Jesus is maybe looking, as painful as this might seem, and taking the smallest cookie with the least chocolate chips on the plate, right? Jesus is offering us in really demanding that as his followers, we live a radically, radically different life. This is the road that Jesus walked. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. 
and as his followers, the, the road that we are called to walk as well. He is the example that we are to follow. And in doing so, we reflect his humility, his love, his mercy, his glory, yes, even his greatness to the world around us. It's an amazing thing. And, and oftentimes, by the world's standards, it's an unexplainable thing. This is an awesome truth and a tremendous challenge indeed. Jesus is the example by which we shape our lives. But the story isn't complete. It's not finished. That, in and of itself, as wonderful and as beautiful as it is, is not the gospel. Because you see, at some point, we, we will wake up and we will look in the mirror and we will realize... I need more. And as great of an example, as great of a life as it is that he lived, and as awesome of a challenge it is to reflect it, if we're just honest with ourselves, even on our very best day, we still want the biggest cookie. We still want to be at the front of the line. We are still absorbed and consumed with our Self, even if our greatest attempts of sacrifice and service, we still, in our very hearts, are consumed by ourselves. It's beautiful and true that Jesus was a great example. But if that is all he was, he really doesn't help me. It just gives me more law to follow. That's the truth. The sad truth here this morning is that for some of you, unfortunately, that is where the story ends. Jesus, countercultural, humble servant, fantastic teacher and philosopher, a life worthy of emulating for sure. If that's where the story ends for you, then you have just taken one law and replaced it with another. You have just traded one set of standards or list of requirements for another. This is not the gospel message. If you're sitting here today and Jesus for you is a good example and you think the apex of Christianity is, look, here is Jesus, now go be like him, then you may be following a religion, but you've not been transformed by the gospel. And honestly, that should be a relief to you. Even on your best day, even with your best effort, Truth is, we still can't perfectly be like Jesus. The very best version of us is still like dirty rags before God. Look at the disciples, for example, walking with Jesus, years with this man, still struggling to overcome pride and love of themselves. That's the good news this morning. Jesus is more than just a great example that we are called to follow. Jesus is our great ransom. That is the gospel message, the true message of Christianity. That's the gospel. The Son of Man came not to, to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This idea of ransom is a payment that was made in exchange for the freedom of prisoners of war, maybe, or slaves or debtors. It's the picture of someone who has fallen into a deep, dark hole. And the cost to get out of that deep, 
dark hole is one that they by themselves cannot afford to pay. But Jesus pays it. He's our great ransom. And how does he pay it? Verse tells us he gave his life. This is the idea of substitution. A payment was made in place of our life, for our life. Jesus' one life for the many. He dies so that we, the only hope that we have of getting out of that deep, dark hole is the ransom payment of Jesus, the life that he gives. The good news of the gospel is to, to be set free from the power of sin Jesus must be more than an example for you this morning. He has to be more than just a great way to live your life. He must be your ransom. Only after that price is paid do any of us stand a chance of having the power it actually takes to live the life he's called us to live. Apart from that ransom, we can't do it. And my prayer for this church my prayer for us, Parkview East, is that we would be people who absolutely reek of humility, who embrace rejection and suffering in a way that is so utterly foreign to this world, that the stench of humility would fill this place. To be that church, it doesn't start with serving Jesus. And I need you to hear this because often we'll stand up here every week because there are so many needs and service is a value among us, right? Jesus has called us to a life of service. Absolutely true, absolutely has. But to be a church that really reflects that humility, that really looks like Jesus, it doesn't start with serving Jesus, but by letting him serve you. That's where it starts. That's the beauty of the gospel. That even in their ignorance and stupidity, you could even say, that Jesus is about to die for these men. And I don't know what you bring into this place this morning. And I don't know what secrets you have in your life or in your closet. But those secrets aren't so terrible. That sin isn't so bad that Jesus isn't willing to hang on the cross for them. Give his life as the payment so that you can live yours. My question this morning is simply, have you done that? Is Jesus for you this morning simply a great example? Or is Jesus for you today your great ransom? And if you need help fleshing that out or figuring that out, I would love to talk with you after the service any Sunday. Any of the people up here on stage would love to have that conversation. So I would just invite you not to not ask that question. Is Jesus for you a great example or is he a great ransom? Let me pray. Father God, thank you this morning for your word. Lord, as we just reflect on the, the wonderful way that you have served your people and made your people, Lord, I pray the only natural response out of that, Lord, is one of humility, one of gratitude for there's nobody in this room who deserves it, Lord. Lord, I pray that you would help us really to be a people who follow hard after you, who are after wholehearted devotion to you, Father. And Lord, I pray that as we understand what that requires, 
that it is impossible to live that life apart from the cross, Lord. So I pray that you would use that truth to grant courage and strength to your people. But we don't know what waits for us outside of these doors. We don't know rejection or suffering or sickness or pain, Lord, that might wait for us. But we do know that, that suffering is just a part of our human experience. And we thank you, Lord, that in our search for significance, in our search for meaning and greatness, Lord, you have made a way. You have made a way for your people to be significant, really to be great. You've redefined it, Father. And I pray that that is what we would pursue. We ask these things in your holy and precious name. Amen.